Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last week, we caught up with United States Army Lieutenant General Dave Bassett, the director of the Defense Contract Management Agency. Headquartered at Fort Lee, Virginia, it oversees more than 11,000 civilians and some 550 military specialists who administer nearly $5 trillion in Pentagon and government contracts from bulk supplies to the most sophisticated weaponry. Their expertise in helping craft and oversee contracts from the inception of programs has been credited with either saving or avoiding costs totaling nearly $3 billion a year. We reconnected with General Bassett at the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting last week in Washington, D.C., where our coverage was sponsored by Raphael USA. And it is my honor to welcome on the program United States Army Lieutenant General Dave Bassett, who is the director of the Defense Contract Management Agency, DCMA, uh, the guys who are an integral part of this uh, process. Thanks for having me, Vago. It's, uh, it's great to be back at AUSA, and it's great to see you again. Uh, terrific, uh, terrific to uh, see you again as, as well. Everybody is talking about the importance of speed at this point, um, and that's something that over a very long period of time have been conversations uh, that we've had in terms of getting capability out to the force. Your job was to get a gun-equipped uh, striker uh, to a very rapid requirement that then uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Army Europe Commander Ben Hodges had, and you did that in four years to get um, a gun vehicle over there. From a contract management standpoint, there's a lot of you know, many folks blame the contracting process, the legalistic, the language. Ultimately, if we want to go fast and go right, is there any contractual right? I mean, what are the modifications have to happen to the system for us to be able to move as fast, for example, as Secretary Kendall uh, says, right? We're out of time. We have to move fast. We've heard that same message from uh, General McConville. We heard it from Secretary Warmoth here. From your standpoint, what are the changes that have to be made contractually to move us forward. So, so I think we have a lot of the authorities that we need today to be able to move quickly. And I think the throughout the COVID pandemic, we showed that we can use other transaction agreements uh, to move quickly when we need to. At the same time, if we want something that's going to be enduring, if we want something that's going to be sustainable in the force, there are things that we can do with FAR-based contracts that give us the, the ability to really see in and make sure we're getting uh, what we pay for. And that's a big part of DCMA's role. Uh, making sure that we're getting the right product at the right time for the right price. Uh, and ultimately, you know, if I go back to my experience as a program manager, uh, my goal is to lay out a program strategy so that contracting doesn't get on our critical path, so that the acquisition bureaucracy doesn't end up slowing a program down, that we do it in parallel uh, with other things that we're doing. Because no matter what you go off and deliver, you still have to design it, you got to build it, uh, you probably got to test some prototypes. You've got to get it in the hands of soldiers and get feedback. And I think a lot of the focus that we've had through the engagements of cross-functional teams have been about getting soldiers involved early and soldier-centric design and speeding up that feedback process. Because like I said, at the end of the day, you've got to design, build, test, field, and sustain. Uh, and we would like that process to go as quickly as the industrial base can possibly deliver those capabilities. Uh, but when you're dealing with things that are complex, it takes a while to bring manufacturing, even modern manufacturing, and to get it right to produce a quality product. How do we need to think about putting the right kind of contractual mechanism against the right contract, right? We find oftentimes that we created the wrong kind of contract, for example, for example, fixed price development, which everybody has regarded as potentially problematic. I mean, certainly in KC-46, I don't want to get specific, uh, you know, the contractor there got in trouble from the Air Force standpoint, that's great. 
Unfortunately, the Air Force signed for airplanes that weren't quite ready and right, and now is bearing that burden because the contractor can say, well, this is now somewhat your problem. How do we get the right contract for the right thing we're trying to do to make sure that actually it's both fair from industry because, for industry because ultimately you're going to have to rely on them, but it's also more importantly fair, fair for the customer? Yeah, I think it starts with a, a qualified contracting professional that really understands the range of tools uh, that are at their disposal. Uh, another transaction agreement may be a great idea when you're just trying to get a prototype out there or when you're dealing with a non-traditional business that doesn't have the accounting system uh, that supports something like a FAR-based contract that would uh, require, uh, that, that would be very difficult for a non-traditional uh, supplier to, to meet. Uh, but it starts with somebody that understands the range of solutions that are available to them and then applying the right solution at the right time on a contract. You know, it, it may not be in the government's interest to move immediately to a fixed price contract vehicle if you're still unsure what the manufacturing costs are likely to be. And so having that uh, ability to think critically and then apply the right contract vehicle to that phase of the program and avoid some overly simplistic one size fits all, you know, I have to have everything has to be fixed price, nothing, everything has to be incentive fee, whatever the one size fits all solution you think you got, I, I think you got to have experienced professionals that understand the breadth of what's available and applies the right tool to the right job at the right time. Um, you're in the business of buying big things in uh, vast uh, quantities or complicated things in vast quantities, but sometimes also in very boutique quantities. Um, what were some of the, you know, you mentioned COVID lessons. What were some of the key COVID lessons from your standpoint? Because ultimately, all of the lessons that we learned there could be applied to any great power competition related challenge as well. Indeed, in, in part because of the way you started working with a whole bunch of folks that you weren't working for with uh, before, for example, commercial industry. What were some of the key lessons from your standpoint that will hold us in good stead uh, in the next emergency, no matter what it is? So I'll say if you, if you wait for the emergency to generate contracting capacity, you're way too late. And so uh, one of the big takeaways was that when, when the nation needed contracting professionals, uh, they were able to turn to the trained contracting workforce in the Army and in the Air Force uh, and in the Navy uh, for capacity that HHS just didn't have. And so the contracting for the vaccines, the surveillance of some of the vaccine uh, OTAs and some of the therapeutics, that, that was all being done with uh, contracting capacity that the Department of Defense had trained uh, and had ready to go. Uh, some folks across the Army in JPEO Chem Bio Defense uh, and in uh, Army Contracting Command brought skills that they'd already learned before the crisis happened that they could then apply. Uh, people from across ACC that really understood how to execute other transaction agreements. Uh, if we were trying to learn how to do that at the same time we were trying to deliver capability, I think we would have had a much more difficult time. Uh, but because they had those skill sets and we had maintained enough uh, capacity of contracting professionals, we were able to support uh, those efforts in a, in a very expedited way. Uh, but if you wait until the, the, you just can't generate that much contracting capacity because there's a learning curve. Uh, and if you diminish your contracting capacity too much over time, you're not prepared to respond to those contingencies. One, one of the points now that we're, uh, as a nation, struggling with is supply chain issues across the world. I mean, actually, it's a global challenge. Um, we have supplies building up in part because we don't have the right kind of you know, trucking capacity uh, at this point, just as we're not able to get the steel or other things that we need uh, for, for the economy, which is starting to come back very, very strong. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing because you are a critical player in that part of the industrial ecosystem? 
So I, so I think when, when the COVID pandemic first, uh, first hit the defense industrial base, uh, the willingness of the department to allow them to continue to operate through the pandemic uh, was critical to, to making sure that we didn't impact programs uh, any more than, than we had to, given the uncertainty at the beginning of the pandemic. And so, so overall, the defense industry did a wonderful job managing through the pandemic. And what we found was where people uh, had, had complied with the CDC guidelines, where they, they ensured physical distancing, where they had mask wear that was enforced, and now later when they have people that are vaccinated, we saw relatively low rates of infection in the workplace. People were still getting sick, but largely it was happening outside the workplace. And so now we've sort of entered a different phase where what we're seeing is impacts to programs because of shortfalls in either materiel uh, or labor. And so the competition for materials, I think, is happening across the entire uh, economy. And the competition for labor is increasingly happening across the entire economy. And so, so when I talk to vendors, and I've talked to a lot already this week, uh, I've emphasized the need uh, for what I've almost described as supply chain intimacy. Uh, these big vendors, these prime vendors that we trust with these major contracts have to be embracing their supply chain and really understand what's going on, uh, both from a materiel as well as, a, as well as a labor shortfalls, so they can actually do something about it. Because right now, that the competition for that labor is happening across the entire industry and between industries. And people feel, I think, coming out of the pandemic that there are options available to them to work uh, maybe in a different industry. And I think uh, making sure that, that we're plugged into that and keeping the right uh, people working on those lines is going to be key. It's especially going to be key as vaccine mandates come into place. And we're having a lot of dialogue with the defense industry about the percentage of their workforce that may elect to retire or take another job because of the vaccine mandates. And we're not sure what those numbers are gonna look like yet, but it's something we're watching really closely. What are, um, are there any particular areas that are uh, red as far as you're concerned and that there may need to be contractual adjustments to um, when it comes to leading defense contracts? I mean, there are some very massive programs that are ongoing, F-35 is one of them that draws off of global supply chains. Um, are, there, are there any things that are red lighted on your instrument panel? So we're not seeing a lot of programs that have been impacted that much from the supply chain impacts, but we are starting to see a few shortfalls. The, the, the semiconductor shortages that, that you see affecting commercial autos in a really dramatic way haven't impacted the defense sector as much as, frankly, I would have expected. Uh, so I'm not seeing anything that's hard red in terms of status just as a result of that. But like I said, I think the, the, the bigger issue going forward is going to be about people. Right? It's going to be about having people with the right skill sets. And in some cases, uh, you've got people that are approaching retirement. We have a somewhat older uh, workforce involved in defense. And if people with those skill sets elect to retire, uh, replacing those skills in this job market and this economy is going to be a big challenge. And it's something that we really need our industrial-based partners to focus on to make sure we don't impact programs going forward. And, and how do we uh, do that, right? I mean, the skill sets, whether you're in a defense contracts, you're a program uh, executive officer and a professional acquisition officer, those skills take a long time to build. I mean, that was one of the big challenges that we saw in terms of building up acquisition skills. And we're just barely recovering from um, what we inflicted on the system in the wake of the Cold War when we did dramatic reductions. What's it going to take for us to make sure that we're on the, on the, on the right side of that human skills equation? So on, on both sides, both on the government side and on the contractor side, I think it's about, one, making sure we have enough capacity uh, for both contracting and program management. Uh, I, 
when I talk about the DCMA workforce as an example, uh, because of budget pressure, we've come down in size pretty substantially over the last couple of years. Uh, and I don't believe that the DCMA workforce costs the U.S. government any money. I think we deliver savings, which is a multiple of the dollars we spend on our workforce. And it's about making sure we get what we pay for. On the contractor side, I think there's a series of job skills uh, that, that are in high demand and in relatively short supply. And I think the most successful companies are going to be the ones that are looking at those low density skill sets that they've got to start right now to train people for before the workforce retires or otherwise leaves the workplace. And, and uh, you know, I asked you on the uh, supply side of things, what are the skill sets that you're most worried about? What, what are the skill sets that you would put on your, your uh, red list? I, I, one of the areas that, that has got me concerned right now is really about field support and sustainment. The, the people that provide field support, the contractors that provide field support to the active force are frequently retired military members. Uh, they frequently have a, a military pension that they can rely on. And as they approach a retirement age, they may decide that, uh, that given all the uncertainty of COVID, they may choose uh, to retire in lieu of continuing to serve. And I can't just go out and hire somebody off the street that's got 20 years of experience with these operational systems that we're now trying to sustain. So that, that field support representative, sustainment, uh, as well as all the touch labor that goes on uh, in the manufacturing process, whether that's welders or machinists, uh, all of those things that as we stand up manufacturing uh, in a meaningful way, hopefully as we bring more American production capacity, those skill sets are going to be uh, in high demand and we're going to be competing with the commercial sector for those skills as well. Um, you uh, mentioned uh, domestic capacity. That uh, brings me to a Buy American uh, question. Um, everybody, I think, looks at it and says, hey, you know, when the United States is spending tax dollars, as the president has said, uh, it's good to see that tax dollar going to American suppliers. On the other hand, the United States military is the best military in the world, in part because we do draw from global supply chains, and especially from our allies and partners uh, that may, as we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan, have better technology uh, oftentimes, whether it was for armor or electronic warfare or, or what have you. How do we strike the right balance here ultimately and make sure that whatever we do, we're doing in a sustainable way, right? You can direct contracts to an American company uh, at the expense of getting it from somebody who might be actually a more efficient and even better supplier. Uh, but at the end of the day, that might backfire on you, right? I mean, how do we need to think about this process? Because there's a lot of concern among almost every uh, supplier on this floor about how these regulations are going to be interpreted uh, ultimately and whether or not that actually undermine capability and increase cost. I think we have to start out by acknowledging that the, the place that we're starting from is a global supply chain. We've had Buy American requirements in law that we've applied with uh, over many years. But as we think about increasing the percentage of things that have to be made here, and we think about repatriating manufacturing that has previously been done overseas, I, I think we have to take a very broad eye towards uh, building uh, sustainable, enduring capacity. Uh, it doesn't do anyone any good to stand up a manufacturing line, uh, give it a single contract, and then have nothing behind it, either in terms of commercial demand or additional government demand, that sustains that manufacturing over time. You know, the goal has got to be uh, building things here in the United States in a way that's uh, cost-effective and sustainable and enduring. 
and, and balancing government demand with commercial demand is, I think, an important part of many, many industries that we'd like to onshore. Uh, I mean, surely there's things that we want to, you know, there's military defense unique things that, that we have to plan long-term demand for, but, but there's also things that, are, that apply to both commercial and defense, and it'd be great if those things are being built in a way that's so cost-effective that we're not relying entirely on the defense budget to sustain that industrial capacity. Um, and we saw a little bit of that in COVID, right, where we onshored stuff, but then actually it was like a contract for a lot of a particular thing uh, and no follow-on contracts, and then unfortunately the poor company goes, well, okay, what do I do now? From your standpoint, what is the, um, do we have a sense on what we know should be something that must be American-made, right? I mean, we have a sense that nuclear reactor components, for example, or nuclear weapon components, or other sort of precision guidance, but even those have Swiss batteries in them and things like that, right? How do we need to think about this um, to make sure that we don't actually make a mistake uh, in, in doing this and end up with less capability at higher cost? I think a lot of the things that you would insist are made here in the U.S. are already made here in the U.S. I think some of the areas that we've got a, we're taking a hard look at as a department are things like microelectronics and semiconductors, uh, areas where largely we've relied on foreign sources that, that we really do want to have the ability to make in a sustainable way here in the States uh, to meet our demand. Uh, and and I'm, again, I, I, I'm hoping in the long run that that, that, is, that builds uh, commercial capacity uh, so that it's not just the, the, the government buying uh, from those sources that we establish. But microelectronics uh, and semiconductors, I think, are an emerging area that we really do want that capacity here in the States. Um, two, uh, two brief questions. Um, do we have as much supply chain visibility, for example, in our electronics and software systems? Time and again, when you have conversations, you realize there may be more Chinese chips in our systems, and there actually may be more Chinese and Russian sourced software in our systems. Uh, a number of folks have talked about the importance of addressing that vulnerability. Do we have that kind of visibility to know what it is that's problematic or not? Or is, you know, or is the problem a lot worse than even people who worry about it a lot uh, think it is? So just by their nature, sometimes supply chains can be fairly opaque. Uh, the prime doesn't always know where every supplier sources everything that they bring. Uh, we are beginning to leverage some, uh, some big data analytics tools and AI that, that can look at things that are publicly available to create that view of the supply chain. And, and we're definitely taking advantage of those, those kinds of tools uh, within the department to provide that uh, supply chain transparency, visibility, and insight. They're not perfect, but they're a great starting point for the kind of follow-on work that we need to do. Uh, but I would offer you really just can't take those results without going that next step and, uh, and doing the analysis that goes along with it. Um, and last uh, question. You're um, a critical player in the ecosystem or, or the tension among requirement, cost, and contracting. And oftentimes the contracts reflect sometimes bizarre or constraining requirements, let's just put it that way, um, that end up actually driving a lot of cost uh, ultimately. What's the right balance to have among requirements, contracting and cost to make sure that we get what we want, but not sort of in a, in unnecessarily constrain ourselves and drive us to solutions that once we you know, decide that we're going to do, more often than not we end up canceling it and changing course on it, right? Because we find, okay, well, that wasn't going to work. How do, how do we need to do this? So, so I'll offer that DCMA is not really in that business, right? DCMA is in the post-contract award, contract administration, and surveillance role. But I think as you think about what has to happen up front, 
Uh, it's important that we balance uh, the art of the possible uh, with the expectations of both timeline and affordability and, and strike a balance between the resources we have available, uh, the requirements that we write, the technology that's available to us and the acquisition strategies that we pursue. Uh, we don't want to spend all of our time and money chasing things we can't catch. We want to deliver capability to our soldiers. And striking that balance is a big part of that. From a DCMA perspective, we're about making sure that what we've put on contract is what's delivered to our soldiers, that it's high quality, uh, and that it's on budget and on time. General Bassett, always an honor and pleasure talking to you. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.